All right, well, good morning again. If you would, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. As we sort of take a stroll through 1 Peter, some of you might think it's a crawl at best. Um, might be good to say for some of you who might be a little newer here that we uh, oftentimes will pick a book and sort of work through it and try to go verse by verse and line by line. And um, sometimes I've heard people say, you know, gosh, it takes us so long to finish a series if we even finish it. And so, and I understand that, and sometimes we don't. But our job as preachers of the gospel or preachers of the word is to simply just preach the word. That's our parameters, and so insofar as we do that, whether or not we finish the series or not, please judge us based on what the actual criteria is. It's just to preach the Word. And if we do that, hey, I think, I think we've been faithful. Um, not that I don't want to get done with a series, but don't let your desire to get done with a series eclipse your desire to actually want to know what it says. Um, that's extremely important. Um, sometimes I'll slow down and focus on one thing, because I think it's worth understanding and sort of exploring a little bit deeper. You can actually have times where you so cram in so much that you go away just with some vague idea of what was said. And so if we can, if we can take our time, look at these terms that are rich, each of them having their own depth to them, um, and own them and take them away, then I feel like we're helped. So, so maybe that helps some of you. That's our, that's our philosophy as it comes to preaching through books of the Bible. Ultimately, we just want to preach the Word. 1 Peter 3. We've been in this section 8 through 12 for a little while. So I'll read it again for us. Peter here bringing things to something of a summary statement. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray again. Father, for a few thousand years now, your people have gathered around this holy book. As you say in your, your scriptures, the holy scriptures. These scriptures are not like any other book. They are set apart. They are set apart in majesty. They are set apart in effectiveness. They are set apart in um, coherence. Um, they are set apart in wonder. And they are also set apart just in the truth that they convey that, that accords with reality. Um, Lord, truth is just that. It's your perspective on reality. 
And so this morning, Lord, we come to this passage in front of us and we see what you have to say about us as it regards just different things, our tongue or um, our behavior, um, our desire to be harmonious, these kinds of things. And Father, we just ask you that you'd please help us to take them to heart. Lord, you've told us in your word that when we hear truth preached or truth taught, that, that we are to, insofar as it's accurate, treat them as the very oracles of God, as if you, are, you Father, yourself are speaking. And so, Lord, we want to have that kind of posture, that kind of attitude this morning. So help us to just take to heart what your scriptures say and live in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so weeks gone by. We've gone through verse 8, 9, and 10. Last week, we looked at verse 10 a little bit closer, and I called that message, um, I don't usually give titles, but it kind of struck me that what we're reading here in verses 10 and following are conditions for blessing. Um, there are conditions in the Christian life as to whether or not you're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, as to whether or not you will uh, be blessed by the Lord. There are conditions for that. We're very thankful for the doctrine of election that we believe is unconditional. And so that's true and wonderful and great and glorious. And yet, at the same time, Peter holds out for us, those who have been chosen in Christ, that there are conditions upon which uh, whether we do them or don't do them will we'll mean God's blessing or, no, or, or not God's blessing. And Peter says that, doesn't he, at the end of verse 9, that hereunto we were called for the very purpose that we might inherit a blessing. And that blessing is conditioned upon these, all these terms and all these phrases around that very promise. That if we're harmonious and we're sympathetic and we're brotherly and kind-hearted and we're not returning evil for evil, and we're not returning insult for insult, and we're giving a blessing instead, and we're keeping our tongue from speaking evil and our lips from speaking deceit, and we're turning away from evil and doing good and seeking peace. These are all the good conditions in which the Lord will bless us. These are the, these are the, these are the conditions in which the Lord wants to uh, sort of hang out with a, with a person or with a body. The Lord has His face set against those who do evil, it says in verse 12. And so it's important for us to remember that. There is a cause and effect relationship in the Christian life. I think sometimes we, we get so fixated on the whole idea of justification that we're justified by faith flowing through grace alone, which is glorious and wonderful. We, we forget about the fact that it still is a relational dynamic. We, we still forget about the fact that God is a person. He's not a systematic theology. He's not a piece of granite in the sky. You can affect him with the way you live. You can affect the Holy Spirit with the way you live and the sin that you allow in your life, those kinds of things. And so we have to remember that. Peter is holding out for us blessing. What a wonderful incentive that is, that God can actually um, take us to places of blessing and give stable lives and lives of contentment, lives that are, are flourishing in him. But it's conditioned upon these adjectives, these things that we're taking to heart. And that's why we took so long to go through each one of them so that we can understand um, the things that please the heart of the Lord. So, verse 10, last time we were together, we looked at this issue of the tongue, and the tongue is a big topic in the scriptures. I mean, I think we all saw that, and we only scratched the surface of looking at it, but the tongue, the tongue is, a, is, is a very big topic, and one of the takeaways of, of that for me was the fact that words are powerful. Um, what we say to one another is extremely powerful, for good or for ill. Um, and as I mentioned, Derek Kidner, just that, that great little synopsis that he has that, 
Death and life are in the power of the tongue, the book of Proverbs say, and that's because words go deep and wide. And that's, the, that's just the truth, isn't it? The dirt, words go deep, they penetrate into us, again, for good or for ill. And they spread as well. They can, they can take on a life of their own and they can, as James tells us, burn down a whole forest with one small ember. And so we have to remember that in our interactions with one another. The Lord takes it so seriously the way we speak about one another, the way we speak to each other, and this, this kind of thing. It's not a small matter to the Lord. You think about those conditions of God blessing a body with his presence and with fruit and those kinds of things, and you think, well, you know, maybe it's through long hours of prayer and long hours of reading the Bible, and all those things are absolutely true. But here he's mentioning character. Here he fundamentally mentions character. Isn't that interesting? And the reality is that you can be reading the Bible all your life and be a liar, right? You can be, you know, saying, you can be going to church, you can be doing all these religious things, and yet if you're not practicing these kinds of things, you're not even paying attention to what you're reading at all. And so this is why I think Peter goes after character. It's one thing to say you're following the Lord, Right? It's one thing to say you know him. It's another thing to be harmonious, to seek to love the brethren, to seek to be sympathetic, to seek to, when insults come at you, not lash back, but have the grace of self-control to instead not lash back and return a blessing or or any of those things Peter mentions there. For hereunto you are called for the very purpose you might inherit a blessing. So we, and then we looked at what blessing was in Psalm 34. There's various things that Psalm 34 lays out. The nearness of the Lord, um, the, the provision of the Lord, um, contentment that the Lord offers us, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Um, you know, it's interesting, in 1 Peter chapter 2, before he tells you to um, long for this pure spiritual milk of the word, he tells you to put away malice, put away clamor, slander, these kinds of things. Um, because um, good fruit can't grow in that soil of bitterness. And you can't hear the Lord's word if you're nursing resentment and all that. So, this morning, I want us to look at just a phrase here. As we consider continually here this, these conditions of blessing from the Lord in verse 11. Not only should we keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit, but we must also turn away from evil. Turn away from evil. This is what I want us to look at. Turn away from evil. So the first thing that struck me when I look at this, as I look at this phrase here, turn away from evil, is the fact that it's, it's not an option. Um, it's actually one word in the original. It's imperative. It speaks of our obligation and the absolute necessity of turning away from evil. Evil, in this sense, must not be overlooked or missed. It must be marked and turned away from. And as it pertains to our relationship to evil, we have an obligation, an absolute obligation, to turn away from it. Paul mentions the same phrase in Romans sixteen seventeen. here talking about false teachers and those who cause divisions. And he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Turn away from them. So in this text here, Paul is saying that these people who cause these dissensions must not, or they must be marked, so you've got to know who they are. In that sense, you're to mark them, you're to know who they are. 
It's not wrong to, to even publicly say these particular individuals are causing division. And you do that so that when they appear, you don't fellowship with them. You turn away from them. You don't embrace them. The word can actually mean to eschew or to shun even. This is how important unity is to the Lord. This is how important it is to purge evil from the body. You don't even give those who are causing division a voice. You turn away from them. You let them only see your back. That's the idea. Now, again, it doesn't mean that if they show up, that you don't acknowledge them in in some sense. But Paul says, I don't want you to associate with them. You turn away from them. You make them feel the fact that they are no longer a part of your fellowship. This is the idea with regard to evil. Christians are to be people who put evil to the side. They are people who turn their backs on evil. They do not embrace evil. We don't have an option to dabble with evil, flirt with evil. Peter is saying if we want God's blessing as a church or individually, we have to have a certain disposition to evil, and that is to turn away from it. Again, seems simple, doesn't it? it? And in some sense, it is simple. You know? Maybe to some of you, almost too simple. You know? It's like, well, where's the... That doesn't seem very, you know, glamorous or, or uh, doesn't give me some secret sauce to live a holy life. Peter just says, turn away from it. You know? There it is. I'm going this way. It's really, in some senses, just that simple. But we've got to ask the question, what is evil? What is evil? And again, this might seem simple. But in our culture, right? When you talk to someone on the street corner about evil, about sin, they're going to have a very different definition about evil than you will, probably. Right? So what is it? Well, the term itself here, kakos, is, it means something like that which ought not to be. That which ought not to be is evil. Or that which brings harm or grief or destruction. That which ought not to be. And that which ought not to to be brings harm wherever it's found. In Genesis 6, 5, very shortly after, relatively speaking, the Lord creates the world. The Lord takes an assessment of the human race and he says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man and it was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now Jesus says that in the days of Noah they were marrying and giving in marriage. Right? And yet the Lord looks at this society sort of flourishing in some sense of sort of regular life going on, and yet the Lord sees it and he sees evil. He also says later in Genesis 6 that it was also full of violence, bickering, clamor, conflict, these kinds of things. And the Lord looks down and he, and he sees this going on and he sees that, it, that it's evil. It's coming from evil, an evil heart. This passage shows us that wickedness springs forth from our hearts. Hearts that are 
prone to evil. And here it's hearts that, the thoughts of those hearts are only evil continually. I don't know if you think about the human race this way. Most people don't think of themselves like this. But humanity has not changed since Noah's day. Um, We're still in the same boat. It's not like they were real bad and we're not. We can say with great confidence that we can look across the world, look across America and see people that the thoughts of their heart are only evil continually. They can't not think evil. And there's a reason for that. It's because the world by and large doesn't know God. And they're creating their realities and creating their lives and their idea of fulfillment on their own apart from him. And that's evil. And it issues forth in destruction. And as the text says here, it issues forth in wickedness. The thoughts of a man's heart is evil continually. And it issues forth in wickedness. In Deuteronomy says, The Lord will send, you, send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke. And all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and you perish quickly on account of your, the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord has given laws to his people right in the old covenant. Laws that say various things about how to love God, about how to love one another. And God says and he comes to them with great warnings because of their evil deeds. And here he ties... Here he ties evil to the fact that they are forsaken him. So evil fundamentally is simply living your life as if God didn't exist. This is fundamentally what evil is. Evil is not just killing somebody every day, right? Or going to rob a bank. Evil is simply forsaking the Lord. God not being in your thoughts, forgetting him, forsaking the very one who made you from from dust. (laughs) He, He makes you from dust. He breathes into you the breath of life and gives you joy and good things and on and on and you go on living as if you're a self made man or woman. That's wicked. This is what the Lord says, and it's not because the Lord is is petty. It's because the Lord has a vested interest in you. He, definite, he, he has a love and a concern for those that he's made. And because he's made you by virtue of that, he owns you. And when you go and do your own thing, as the book of Isaiah says, we like sheep have all gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. He takes that very seriously. Right? If you come home one day and you see your child walking down the road with a backpack and he's ready to make his own way and he doesn't want to listen to you, As a parent, you're going to take that really seriously. It's going to be a personal hurt, right? And the Lord takes it seriously. God has made us. We have not made ourselves. And the way you treat him and the way you live before him, if you have forsaken him, that's evil. Later in Deuteronomy 31, he says, For I know that after my death... You will act corruptly and turn away from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. So there he's talking about the harm and the destruction that will come upon you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the works of your hands. He says you'll turn away from that which I have commanded you. And here we have a little bit of an insight into what is evil. Right? Evil is turning away from what God has commanded. 
Because you might think, well, forsaking the Lord. Well, I'm not forsaking the Lord. Well, you you test that by by testing whether or not you're turning away from what he said. That's how you test it. You might think, well, I'm not turning away from the Lord. I'm not doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, the way you test it is by, well, what has the Lord said? And are you obeying him? Are you coming under his rule, reign, and lordship? You do evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's what matters in the end. What does the Lord say evil is? That's what matters. Second Samuel, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. David here rebuked doing evil in his sight, doing evil in God's sight, by taking the life of an innocent man, taking his wife with in, in, in this and in, in committing adultery, and then just it ripples from there. And God calls all of this evil. So if evil is sort of what ought to be, if evil is the commands of the Lord not obeyed, then this is a huge this is a huge issue in terms of how we think about it. Because everybody kind of wants to know what is good, what is evil. These discussions happen all the time in our society. Whole philosophers give their entire lives to determining what's evil, what's good, what promotes human flourishing, what, what doesn't. And for us, we, we have such an incredible advantage, right? What, what has God said? Knowing what God says tells us what ought to be. And it pertains to every sphere of our existence. Like I said, this is an extremely important point to consider. One of the, one of the primary objections to the existence of God, or at least objections to the existence of the biblical God, is suffering and evil, right? If God is good and all-powerful, well, why is there suffering and evil? And it bothers people. And oftentimes it, it gives them an excuse for not believing in him. They say if there's evil out there, how in the world can there be a good God or a powerful God? This is an extremely important point, and it's, again, it's one of the primary objections, I'd say, against Christianity for people. But before we begin to even answer how evil and suffering can exist in God's universe, we have to tell people that the very fact that they even have a category of wrong and evil is because of God's existence. The very fact that you believe that, that there is evil is because God exists and has revealed in His Word and has given everyone an innate sense in their own conscience of good and evil. Right? Your conscience is it's your moral compass. It's your sort of highest standard of good, inwardly, so to speak. It's, like an, it's a moral alarm, so to speak. And God gave this alarm to people. So, so, so when people bring up And they say, how can God exist if there's evil and suffering? Ask them, how do you know that there's evil at all? Why do you call murder evil? Why do you call rape evil? Why do you call human trafficking evil? Why do you call famine evil? Why do you call socialism evil? Who's to say? 
right? That sort of boils it down, doesn't it? Who's to say it's evil? Who's to say it's good? Without God's word, a God-given conscience, there is no objective basis that's supreme, that we can determine good and evil. So again, the bottom line is that the very fact that people struggle with the existence of evil proves there is a God who has fixed standards of good and evil. The very question at all, the reason it bothers you is because there is a standard that's fixed. (laughs) And this comes from the living God. So God's word tells us what ought to be and what ought not to be. And what ought not to be is evil. Again, so simple. But it's not, simp- it's not that plain to everybody, is it? Think about marriage, for instance. Marriage in the West. In the scriptures, in the book of Genesis, God holds out for us the pattern of marriage. It's clear, isn't it? One man, one woman, they become one flesh permanently, and they have children. Right? One man, one woman, one flesh, permanent. This is the pattern. To define it any other way is evil. That's pretty simple. But not to everybody. Not to most people, I would say, in the world at large. Joe Rogan was in an interview with Matt Walsh. Maybe you saw this. I don't necessarily recommend uh, youngsters to watch Joe Rogan because he's foul in some of the things he says, but he's extremely popular. He probably has the most listened to podcast in America right now, or I don't know about the world, but definitely in the West. And he had an interview recently with conservative uh, um, commentator Matt Walsh on marriage, on what is it. And Joe Rogan wants to define marriage as simply a relationship of those who love one another. That's it. Love one another. So you can be two men, two women, man and woman. doesn't really matter. just matters that you love one another. Well, obviously, this takes all the objectivity out of marriage and places the significance and the purpose of marriage entirely as a subjective thing. Right? What's to say a, a, a man can't marry a young boy? What's to say, you know, um, two men couldn't marry one woman? I mean, what's to, it's, it's, it's endless in terms of all these aberrations based on this definition. Whatever makes you happy, whatever feels right, this is the worldview of the West. This is when you leave this building and you go out there and you're walking around and you're listening to radio ads and you're watching TV. This is the... This is the worldview. It's whatever makes you happy. Are you at least happy? Right? Do you love them? These kinds of things. Not, is it right? What does God say? That kind of thing. And it was interesting listening to this podcast between these two guys. Matt Walsh is a Catholic and holds to biblical idea of marriage. And yet he never brought it up, at least not in the clips that I heard. And it was just frustrating, you know, you watch it and you're just like, ugh, why aren't you at least bringing up the obvious here? 
Joe Rogan believes this. He believes that marriage, and he said this, that marriage is an invention of man. It's something we came up with. It's an invention of man. And the one clip that I saw, Matt Walsh, he doesn't even go after that wrong thinking, which to me was like a softball. Not that Rogan would hear it, but at least it would be saying what's true, and that is that the scriptures give us the definition of marriage and that it is not an invention of man. Marriage is God's idea, right? Marriage is God's idea. It's God's invention, as it were. He's the one who established its parameters. He's the one who tells us what it is. All aberrations from that are evil. Joe's logic actually makes sense if it is an invention of man, because if it's an invention of man, who, I mean, who cares? You're going to give it a definition. She's going to give it a definition. Who cares? But ultimately, what has God said? God has the final word on its meaning, meaning and purpose. So it all boils down to, has God spoken or not? This is how we know what ought to be. And without this, we cannot know evil at all. And so when you're thinking of marriage, for instance, being one man committed to one woman for life, this reveals all the evil, immoral aberrations of it. Right? Remember, in Matthew 19, I believe, when Jesus is addressing divorce, he appeals to Genesis 2 that says nothing about divorce. And he, and he brings it up because it's the grid through which we filter all expressions of behavior with regard to marriage. And divorce, when it hits that grid of marriage, it's found wanting. And so Jesus says, have you never read? It says in Genesis 2 that the Lord wants them to stay together. My paraphrase. (laughs) One flesh. Divorce makes no sense in one flesh paradigms. It becomes, in our culture, completely commonplace for people to live together who are not married. They have sexual relations with one another and live together as if they're married, but deliberately choose not to be married. (laughs) This is called, in the Bible, it's called fornication. There's a category for it. And fornication is evil. This ought not to be. But society says it's normal. And even over time, some Christians can even be duped into thinking, well, maybe it's okay they're living together. I mean, they love each other, right? They're planning on getting married, maybe, sort of, kind of. And you hear the Lord Jesus in John chapter 4 say to the woman at the well, and the man you're now with is not your husband. She's with him. She has him. But they're not married. It's a conscious choice they've made. Maybe she would and he wouldn't. I don't know. But they're not married. Jesus there calling out her sin so that she will turn away from it and find life in him. And, of course, that's a whole other message. But but it's evil. It's something that needs to be turned away from because it's evil. This biblical pattern of marriage rules out so many things, doesn't it? Again, one man, one flesh, permanent. It filters out everything. Think of it. Homosexuality. It's one man, one woman. Not two men, not two women. Think of polygamy, right? Not multiple partners. Think of pedophilia. Think of bestiality. Think of polyandry, pornography. All these things. This pattern filters out all of these things and reveals them to be 
evil. Pornography completely disgraces the sacredness of intimacy. It's one man, one woman, one flesh together. Not you watching one woman and one man, right? It's wicked beyond measure. And it's destroying this culture. Absolutely destroying marriage in this culture. Pornography is a cancer and an acid that we can't fathom how much. It's destroying the people who watch it, and of course it's destroying the people that are in it. Proverbs 31, do not give your strength to women or your ways to that which destroys kings. The evil brings destruction. Pornography brings destruction. It's, it's not a neutral thing. People say, well, I look at these things. They don't hurt anybody. Yeah, they do. They hurt you. They hurt your, your friends, your family. You end up broke, uh, and you end up having nothing if you're married for your spouse. You give your strength to others. It's horrible. You know, you see whole marriages just fall apart because they don't, they don't have anything for one another because they spend it all on what they've been viewing on the, on the, on the web. It's wicked. You've given your strength to another. That's why the book of Proverbs says, go and drink from your own fountain. So many men giving their strength to the computer screen and the prostitute, and they're destroyed by it. And the same is true for women, too, actually, more and more. Women being duped, not, not just into watching pornography, but just Facebook and old flames and social media Romance novels, all these things where, before you know it, these weary housewives end up daydreaming and, and, and repeating in their minds and hearts the things that they've read or the things that their old flames tell them online. And before they know it, they're at the coffee shop for an innocent meeting and then, well, we know what can happen after that. They didn't turn away from evil. They didn't turn away. Brethren, this evil better stay a thousand miles away from those of us in this church. Sexual immorality can ruin your marriage. It can ruin a congregation if it's indulged. If we want God's presence and blessing and fellowship, we must turn away from evil. We cannot entertain and flirt with it. So that's just marriage. That's just one thing. And, and, and God's word tells us what marriage is, what it ought to be, and you can see all the deviations that come from it and all those things are evil. How about parenting? What about parenting? What ought to be? What, we, what, what ought parenting to look like? And the scriptures have so many things to say about this. Well, I mean, at very least, well, let's not say parenting. Let's say how should children regard parents? I mean, again, so clear both in Old Covenant and the New Covenant, children are to obey their parents and honor their parents. Kids, this is what the Lord has for you. We know you can't go to the mission field and oftentimes can't go downtown in evangelism and, and those kinds of things. Some of you can't even read. But what you can do is obey mom and dad. What you can do is honor your parents. This is, this is good and right, Paul says, in the, in the eyes of the Lord. This is right. It's a wonderful thing to see a, a child or a, a, a young son or daughter say, Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. That's a good thing. The Lord, Lord is pleased with that kind of thing. Honoring parents. 
But our world has flipped things on its head. And instead, bought into the evil that successful parenting is obeying your children. Right? It's, it's whatever they say goes. It's, I don't want to upset them, so I want to obey my kids. They pitch a fit, and I give in. That's wicked. That's evil. You don't let them win. You have love, you have grace, but you don't let them win. It's not good for them. We'll see that in a second. Paul actually says in Romans 1, the marks of a society under the wrath of God is children disobeying parents. And kids, do you know that it's evil when you don't honor mom and dad? When you disobey, it's actually evil. It's actually a sign of the wrath of God on a culture when a culture goes this way. God gives you over to disobedience. That's a scary place to be. So on the flip side, about parents disciplining children, what do the scriptures say? What ought to be? Well, he who withholds his rod, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. This is what the scriptures teach. Now, I know you can take this too far and the Gothardites and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is the Bible does teach this. It does say if you withhold your rod, you hate your son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Think of that. Proverbs 13, 24. Think of this. I hear parents say all the time, well, I don't spank my kids because I don't want them to hate me. Right? The book of Proverbs says that's the opposite of how you should be thinking. If your kids are being disobedient, and I know that it can be sort of age appropriate, but you're not bringing to bear the rod in your kid's life, the book of Proverbs says you hate your kids. You don't love them. That's not love. That's hatred. If you say, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to take away these certain privileges from my child because I don't want them to hate me, or I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I can't discipline them like that because I just love them too much, the book of Proverbs says, no, you don't. It's a sign of hatred. The Bible calls your bluff. The Bible says if you withhold the rod and you don't discipline diligently, you hate your children. Why? Because you've made the issue about you. Not about them. You don't want to inconvenience yourself. You don't want the, the headache of the correction. And I get it. You want to pull your hair out sometimes, right? You don't want to do the hard work of correction. It, it's... It's, it's extremely hard, but if you don't, it's a mark of laziness. Isn't it? An indifference. If you really love your children, you'll give them that gift of, no, you can't do that. <laughs> now, I would say, say yes as much as you genuinely can, right? We don't want them to grow up in Stalin's Russia. But at the same time, they need correction. They need to know what authority is. And again, I know that corporal punishment is not the only way to discipline children, and there's an age factor, but it's an expectation of the Lord that parents will use on their kids if they're going to love them well and obey the Lord. So parents, turn away from negligent parenting. Parenting. <laughs> 
you know, if you let your kids just do whatever they want, whenever they want, you're actually, it's, it's just going to be creating chaos with, with, with so many people, and then you're not going to want your kids to be playing with their other kids. I mean, the, the, the ramifications just spiral out, don't they? Now, we need to have grace. I like kids running around and playing and having a good time when it's right, when it's time for that, right? Now wouldn't be the time for that. Um, most of the time, you know, inside may not be always the best time for that. But there's some gray there, right? But at the same time, we have to teach our kids parameters. We have to discipline them diligently. We need to teach them awareness, socially speaking. Those kinds of things. And it doesn't mean if you do all this, they're going to become Christians necessarily. But obey the Lord in these things, and the Lord will bring forth fruit. I mean, ultimately, you're wanting to live before the Lord, and you're wanting to do what's best for your kids. You know, I'm a, I, am, I am continually struck as I grow as a father, as a leader at work, as a leader in the church, at how important it is that this principle of, of correction is. It's just so important. And you can get into a place to where you become judgmental and critical and overly corrective and all that. But I just think about the book of Proverbs. You know, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You think about that. If you're really friends, you tell each other the truth. If you're really friends, you know, um, because we need correction. We all do. Um, And deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Don't say you're my friend if you don't tell me. If you see something in me that needs to be corrected, don't let me hang myself, right? Don't let me fall into my own pit. That's not love. That's cruel. This principle applies in so many different areas, but I'll go on. So parenting children, those kinds of things. Well, how about work? Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external services, those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing, from, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, which is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So here's what ought to be. Slaves obey masters on earth. Now this is talking about slaves. You know? Slaves obey your masters who are on earth. That's quite a statement. What ought to be with masters and slaves? Or in our case, we can think employers and employees. There's a measure of obedience that we're to have for the expectation of our employers. This is what ought to be, right? Employers should be just and fair with those under them, treat them justly, fairly, you know? Unfortunately, in this sinful world, there's greed, there's sweatshops, there's oppressive work environments, there's all kinds of other corrupt things that go on at the top. And so there are a lot of evil practices of employers, There are duplicitous business deals where people undercut others out of greed and all these things. These things ought not to be. Just balances the Lord takes seriously. And as employees, right, we ought to be very thankful for the work that we have. Seek to work with skill and honor and and work unto the Lord. And instead, often we're lazy, we're self-absorbed, and even sometimes in this culture, you just show up and you feel like you deserve a raise. You know, that's, that's this American 
Western mindset oftentimes. And they complain and they grumble over very, very petty things. But this is all evil, if this is your attitude. If you're a boss or an employee, turn away from those types of evil. If you're a boss, be fair, be just. If you're an employee, obey from the heart, knowing you work from the Lord. Don't be lazy, be skillful. These kinds of things. Just The Lord honors this. Paul brings up these kinds of contexts because he wants you to know that no context is really out of the sphere of the Lord's observation. Right? Nothing secular in that sense. And there's so many other things. What about the brethren? Well, we've already looked so much at this, but what, what ought to be with the brethren? How, how are we to be as brothers and sisters? Well, scriptures say love one another. Jesus said, new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. This is the way it ought to be. <laughs> when we're considering the interests of others more important than ourselves, when we're praying for one another, when we're seeking encouragement, speaking encouragement to one another, when we're serving one another, it's a beautiful thing. It's good. It's, it's glorious. It's good context for God's blessing in our lives. But, but if we gossip, if we, if we prefer our own interest is more important than others, oh, we've got to turn away from that. Right? Sometimes... I hear that people don't feel like they're connected at times here. And, and, and it's rare when I hear that because we're, I mean, we pretty much try to pull in anybody and everybody that comes here. hope that if you're newer, you've experienced that. Sometimes you still hear that. And if I hear that, I mean, I immediately think, I'm like, you're not loving others. <laughs> because I know the brethren here. Not perfect people, but I know they're going to be reaching out to you if you're new. And so it's a two-way street. So turn away from that isolationism, right? Turn away from that only worried about your own interests and seek the interests of others. Um, yeah, just Jeff was saying earlier, you know, just make a friend. Go, go make a friend, all right? People ask, how do you plug in a new covenant? I'm like, well, there's Joy, there's Kyle, there's, you know, Michael, there's Matt. This is how you plug in. <laughs> you... No, one another. You devote yourselves to one another in brotherly love. These kinds of things. So this is what ought to be. You love one another. But oftentimes, you know, sometimes you can hear gossip. You can hear slanderous things. And, when, and you're tempted to do that at times. But, but just know, it only leads to wrongdoing, the psalmist says. Turn away from all that. How about circumstances or contentment in life? What does God say about that? Well, I mean, the Lord has a lot to say about being grateful, doesn't he? He has a lot to say about um, cultivating a thankful heart. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, Were you called when you were single? Were you called when you were married? When you were called while you were a slave? Stay in the situation in which you found yourself when you were called and serve the Lord in that capacity. We're always thinking, oh, if I can just get out of this situation, then I'll serve him, right? If I can get out of that one, I'll serve him. Well, Paul says, just the way you were called. Even if, again, he brings up slaves and masters, even in that context, you can serve the Lord, right? You can be a faithful slave to the Lord or an unfaithful one. You can be a faithful worker or unfaithful worker. You can, all these things. So your condition, your circumstances, ultimately don't matter if you know Christ, and contentment's a big deal. Contentment's a big deal. Both men and women struggle with this. We, if we're not careful, we can end up feeling entitled. Oh, I deserve this, or I deserve that, or I deserve this boat, or I deserve this 
nice car, or I deserve this nice piece of furniture, or whatever, or you complain and you complain and I'm complaining about your house, or these kinds of things, and on and on. There were, there were people in history that were an example of what not to be with regard to contentment, right? And who were they? Well, it's Israel. Israel, the parable of the human heart. There's Israel. And God gives page after page after page of history of unbelieving, complaining Israel so that we'll learn what not to do. It's gracious of him to do that. But one of their besetting sins in, as you read through the Old Testament, is this issue of grumbling and complaining. And, and over what did they grumble and complain? Well, I mean, food and water. I mean, the reality is, they, had, relatively speaking, they, they had a hard lot. I mean, they were on an ongoing camping trip in a desert. At, at one level, you're like, this seems harder than at least some sort of semblance of normalcy in Egypt, even though we, that's a deception because they didn't know God. But it's not a cakewalk, right? And they complain and they grumble because they don't have food. And when they get food, they don't like it because they have to eat the same thing every day and, and so on and so forth. And so they, they, they grow discontent. They begin to say to themselves, oh, I wish we had that food that we had back in Egypt. They begin to grumble against leadership. And, and over, it, over it says that God heard their grumbling. He heard their grumbling. He heard their grumbling. And they would gripe to Moses and to one another. They would say, does Moses even know what he's doing? We're going to die out here. Saying things like this. Just a complete wrong perspective. You think God's going to deliver you from Egypt to bring you out here just to die? But it's wrong thinking, right? Sin is irrational. Discontentment breeds that. Just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Extrapolate out. What does Moses say when he hears this over and over? He says, For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. So these, these men and women, these hundreds of thousands of, of them, by and large were a complaining, grumbling people. And, the Lord, and, 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 and oftentimes their, their complaints would come straight to Moses and Aaron. And Moses says, when you do this, when you complain about your plot here, you're actually... You're actually Complaining against him. Your grumblings are not against us, but the Lord. We don't think this, brethren. We do not think this. We think we have a right to complain and grumble and complain because we do it against each other. And we just think that it's okay. <laughs> we do. It's, 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 it's sort of, what is that book? Respectable Sins. It's sort of that, you know, everybody does it. We think it's only against him if we, if we look up in the sky and say, what are you doing, Lord? But that's, <laughs> that might be a complaint, but that's not what it says here. These people are grumbling and complaining against leaders, against food, these kinds of things. And it's against the Lord. Brethren, we've got to turn away from this. We have to serve the Lord in our circumstances. We have to cultivate thankfulness in our hearts. We have to remember we're blessed beyond measure. This is what Israel forgot. 
Wait a minute. We have the living God. He's ours, and all that it means to be God is ours. We have a redeeming God, a God who loves us, a God who has promised us an incredible future. What are we doing complaining? We're rich beyond measure. How much more of us in Jesus Christ? Paul calls the gospel the unfathomable riches of Jesus Christ. You know, you think of a fathom, there's no bottom to the measurement. And, and that's what we have in Christ, no matter what you have. No matter if you're living at the mission or whether you got a, 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 a nice home, whatever it is, if you're in Christ, you're unfathomably rich. Who are we to grumble and complain? We've got to turn away from that. It only breeds that leaven of ingratitude. The Lord doesn't like hearing that over and over and over. If you're a complaining person, turn away from it. Just say, Lord, start making me thankful. Start making me see the things that are truly blessings indeed. Instead of just thinking that you're just in God's sights constantly uh, as, and he's got some mean agenda for you. Now, if you're in that spot and you feel that way, I'm not saying don't go to the Lord and be honest with him. Be honest with him. I'm not saying even just talking to the brethren about the times you're really struggling. Be honest with the Lord. But you can't cross a line. Job had to repent, ultimately. <laughs> you begin to assign evil to God in your assessments of his dealings in your life. Well, you can't go there because God does no wrong. But ultimately, we need to cultivate thankfulness. As I finish up here, I just want to say there's so many other things we could mention, but when you're thinking about turning away from evil... This assumes you have a good working knowledge of the scriptures. Because if you don't, you will not understand what evil is. You will not understand what good is. And so I just tried to hopefully just explain that a little more. Again, very simple, but I hope you, you understand that. But you know the worst evil of all, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but just to put a fine point on it, the worst evil of all is forsaking God. The worst evil of all is living without God. <laughs> That is the fundamental worst evil of all. Jeremiah 2.12, many of you are very familiar with this, where God comes through the prophet and says this to his people. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, and be very desolate, declares the Lord. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils. Forsaking God, and replacing God. Two evils. You turn away from him and you soak it and you and you soak up something else in his place. It's wicked. Could be family, could be sports, could be career, could be all manner of things. And it'd be evil. And you don't think that, do you? When you're watching the news, you're watching a podcast on this and that and the other thing that's talking about the good life, whatever it is. You just don't look at it as evil, but God does. God sees that a life pursuing other things in God's place is evil. Because God's the fountain of life. And this is the condition of every man and woman outside of Jesus Christ. We, we want to find fulfillment, we just don't want it in the Lord. Not with, the, not with the Lord as he's revealed in the scriptures, you know. And this kind of evil is, is why the cross exists. You know? This is why the cross of Jesus Christ exists.
At the cross, Jesus deals with evil. You're evil. My evil. That's where, it's, that's where it's dealt with. Because we are evil by nature, we deserve from God a just response of wrath, just punishment. Jesus, it's amazing, in Matthew, he looks at the crowds and he's teaching different things. And he's talking about when you pray and he wants to he wants to describe how God's character is essentially good. When you ask God for things, he's going to give you good things. He's not going to turn around and give you something that's going to hurt you. Right? You're familiar with that. God, you ask God for bread, he's not going to give you a stone and those kinds of things. And Jesus says this statement almost in passing. If you then talking to the crowds there, if you the, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Just in passing, Jesus pronounces this label on the whole crowd. Yeah, you're evil. And you give good gifts to your children. How much your father, who's not evil at all? It's like, whoa, I mean, that's kind of offensive. You're all evil. What a statement. They may even be decent parents. They give good, nice things to their kids, and he calls them evil. You look at people like that. I don't mean from judgment, I just mean in terms of their own plight. He calls them evil. Every human being outside of Jesus Christ is not good. They are evil. And even after we're in Christ, Paul says, I find a principle of evil in me. Still there. And why? Well, it's because they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. They love darkness more than light. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, talking about this, the human race. He says, And just that they, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, inventors of evil, boastful, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, that is, they know inside these things are wrong and probably deserve punishment. They know that. Everybody even that doesn't have the Bible knows that. That there's such a thing as right and wrong, such a thing as just punishment. They not only do the same as these wicked things, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. People are evil. You know? Paige and I were talking about this the other day, you know. People again, they often wonder, you know, why why do bad things happen to good people? And it's just a bad question. It's why do good things happen to bad people? Why does anything good happen to us? Seriously. I mean, you, you've really got to get a grip on this because you live in a culture that thinks that you are really good. Everybody's good. <laughs> they all think that. You go ask them, are you, are you evil? And they, they, won't, they won't say that. Right? They're duped into thinking what everybody's telling them. And oftentimes it's because they're not as bad as the next guy. Right? There's always somebody worse than you. Romans 5, Paul says... 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And that's a wonderful text for so many reasons. Paul here in the book of Romans, he's speaking to Christians, reminding them of several vital truths. Number one, they were enemies of God at one time. It's good to remember that. Before you get puffed up and prideful, you remember, wait a minute, before I was a Christian, I actually had my sights set on just the defamation of the Lord. Enemies. Maybe unwittingly, but you did. Enemies. You didn't want God. You, you, and you might be here this morning and you don't know God, but you think, I've never been an enemy of God. I've always been good with God. If you've never seen yourself as an enemy of God, it's some, in some measure, you don't know God. If you've never seen yourself as someone that at one time in your life was walking away from the Lord, didn't want anything to do with the Lord, or you don't know God. Because it means you've never really seen yourself. If you've never seen yourself as someone who at one time preferred the fleeting pleasures of sin rather than the life that God offers you in the gospel, you don't know the Lord. The Lord's salvation comes to those who know they need Him desperately. And they know that they're enemies of the Lord apart from him. They know they're in a heap of sin and God needs to save me. We're looking at that this morning at Miracle Hill. A child is born and, he, and God has sent you a savior. It's just a wonderful passage. Paul brings out this issue of reconciliation. People only need reconciliation if they're at odds. The whole world is at odds against God. It's a sobering thought. But this leads to that second wonderful truth, and then we're done. We were enemies. But Paul also reminds them that the death of Jesus on the cross has gained us reconciliation back to the Father. Well, how? Well, I mean, again, he says it. The death of Jesus. Through the death of his Son, we've been reconciled. When Jesus died, he didn't just die of old age. He didn't die of natural causes. He died on a cross. On purpose. To reconcile sinners back to the Father. Jesus, when he was on the cross, died as a substitute for wicked people like you and me. Enemies like you and me. And that punishment that we deserve because of our sin, which is absolutely right, Jesus took in his own body on the cross that we might not bear our own sins in our body in hell forever. That's what the cross is all about. I hope everyone realizes that that's what the cross is about. It's not about, you know, it's not about a holy man doing some holy thing, right? I mean, it is at some level, but it's not just, oh, look at him there as a revolutionary making a statement. He's there as God's enemy. <laughs> He's there. If you want to see what, it, what, what an enemy of God looks like, there it is. It's on the cross. And the, and the crazy part of it is that he's God's son. And yet he's being treated like an enemy. He's being treated like you and I deserve. So that when we trust in Jesus Christ, God no longer treats us like enemies, but sons and daughters. That's the beauty of the good news, the beauty of the gospel, that though we're enemies, we can be counted as righteous forgiven and more than that 
children of God. It's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus Christ has died for evil people. The question is, do you know this? Have you seen your sin? Have you seen evil in your life this morning? Do you see it as you hold up the scriptures? Do you see it? Okay, yeah, there's... That's evil. I didn't know that was evil. That's evil. I need to turn away from that. If God is showing you that this morning, that's a precious gift. That's a wonderful gift. And if you see it, turn from it and run to Jesus Christ. See Him taking your sin on the cross. Believe in Him and God will forgive you of your sin. Forgive you that evil. So before you do anything, make sure this crucial first step is taken first. Right? Because you can, you can stay with your spouse, you can discipline your kids, you can be a good employee at work and die in your sin still. <laughs> Don't do that. Come to Jesus Christ. Don't see this as some self-help thing with a bunch of rules. You're in desperate need of forgiveness. You're in desperate need of the gospel. You're in desperate need of, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ if you don't know him. And even if you do, you're still desperately in need, but you have it. And the beauty is, is if you want Christ, you can have Christ. That's just an amazing thought. And if you have Christ, you're in the family. You're in the family of God. And now the Lord wants us now that those of us who have turned away from evil beginning of our Christian lives, now I want you to continue to turn away from evil, you know, which means stay in this book, um, keep short accounts with sin, and, um, and we'll have the blessing of the Lord. That's a great incentive, brethren. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you take something of what was said today and prick the hearts of your people and, Lord, those who don't know you. Um, pray that to Lord, that we will have your perspective on good and evil and live in light of it. Um, Lord, just bless my brethren this afternoon as they fellowship together. Lord, that our fellowship would be sweet. Um, There would be open-heartedness. There would be hearts knit. And there would be a fellowship of the Spirit. And uh, for those, Lord, who don't know you, uh, Lord, that you would just draw them miraculously, mysteriously, but miraculously to yourself. And say to them, I am your salvation. And they would hear and live. In Jesus' name, amen.